Well, good morning, church. My name is Jason, one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Why don't you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Start off the New Testament and you hit Acts and then get into Romans. As always, if you get to First and Second Corinthians, go back to the left. Romans chapter 3, we will be in verses 9 through 18. And I'd like to read that for us, pray, and then we will go from there. Romans chapter 3. Verses 9 through 18. 9 through 18. Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And then verse 18, Paul concludes this portion. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These are the very words of God. And we say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, as always, we need your help when we come to your word. We're so grateful for it. We're grateful that in uncertain and unprecedented times, we get to look to your timely and timeless word. And so open our eyes, uh, teach us, correct us, convict us, grow us, do all of these things that only your word can do. No amount of our effort, even over the course of a lifetime, can accomplish what you can by your word in an instant. And so we ask as your people, as your children, though we are completely undeserving of your attention and of your grace, we ask that you would graciously work on us. Reveal the truth and beauty of you, our God, and your glory to us. Now, as we come to your word, we ask in Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said, Amen. So we're just coming out of a portion of Paul's letter in chapter 3, where he's asked and answered a series of questions and in, in general, what he has done is really voiced objections that, that he heard and that he was understanding from his original audience in first century Rome, about 57 BC. Um, but then also, he's not just generally speaking about objections, but he's, he's uh, focusing in on God's judgment, God's sovereignty to bring about uh, his divine justice and, and his people. And that really was a carryover from chapter two as well. See, uh, just like you and me, though, people didn't like hearing about judgment. They certainly didn't like hearing that, that they were going to be judged. And so all of these questions were a little bit like God's people trying to find any way they could wiggle out of being held accountable, any way that they would not be culpable or accountable on the day of the Lord. And, and I hope that what you have been learning, and, and I know that I have been learning as we've gone through this particular portion under the heading of righteousness in Romans chapter 2 and chapter 3, is that all of those tendencies of God's people, particularly the Jewish people, moralistic in their thinking, moralistic in their upbringing, moralistic in the way that they, they viewed the world, really what, what's revealed about their behavior are things revealed in our own tendency, in our own heart, our desire and even willingness to try to wiggle out of God's uh, justice and his judgment. Uh, to be sure, what we have learned is that in Christ we're protected. In Christ, there is a safeguard 
for us. And yet often it is in our own morality and our own sort of spiritual laziness and entitlement that we seek to find refuge from God's wrath. So we don't hide in Christ. We hide in what we believe that we have earned. And, and, and what, this, what this ought to look like then as we more and more understand what it means to be in Christ is that it will result not in trying to wiggle out of God's judgment, but it will result in gratitude, in obedience, and in righteousness. In other words, in doing the law that God has required and that God has made clear. And one of the first questions that Paul asked in chapter 3 uh, was this. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Rather, it's the first one that he asks in this in this chapter. It's the first sentence. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Now, contextually, this question or that question was coming in response to Paul's claim that circumcision, being marked as God's people, was a matter of the heart, not a matter of the flesh. That to be protected from God's wrath, we must first admit that we are deserving of God's wrath. And that ultimately that the, our, our safety is, is in acknowledging that reality and finding ourselves hidden in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this would have been very difficult for the Jewish person, the religiously inclined person, to accept. And, and we can even perhaps hear or understand that in a bit of an exasperated kind of way, we can imagine them saying, well, then what was this whole faith about? Or what, what was the goodness, what is the value of the faith that I grew up in. And surprisingly, what Paul says in verse 2, if you look at it, he says it's much in every way. Of what advantage, of what value is it to be a part of the people of God? Paul says much in every way. And it's that exchange in verses 1 and 2 that sets us up for another surprise here in verse 9. So let's look at it. Romans 3 verse 9. At first, it seems like the same question. What then? Are we Jews any better off. Now, in a relationship with verses 1 and 2, we would expect him to say, well, yes, absolutely. But he doesn't. He says, no, not at all. For we have all already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So in verse 1, there is advantage and value in being Jewish, in, in growing up around the things of God. He says, much in every way. But just eight verses later, Jews are not any better off. So, so what's this about? What's this tension, this apparent contradiction about? Well, first we have to understand that in both cases before, pa- Paul is not being inconsistent. The answer given in verses 1 and 2 is about the great value it is to grow up around the scriptures, to grow up around God's word, to grow up in a community of faith. And to be sure, we hope that our children today, as they are growing up into the church, growing up in the church rather, are learning to love the things of God, are memorizing God's word, are learning to obey God's word. To be sure, this is a hustle, this is a challenge, and yet it is a joy to see our children grow up around the things of God. And we pray that they wouldn't know a day when Jesus was not their Lord, he was not real, he was not central to all of the things they understood about this life. See, it's of great worth to grow up in the faith. This is what he says in verses 1 and 2. However, growing up in the faith, here's what he says in verse 9, does not save you. Growing up in the faith does not save you. This is why Paul says, no, not at all, in verse 9. Jews are not any better off when it comes to righteousness. There is great value, great advantage to growing up in the things of God, but even growing up in the things of God does not save you. Let that settle in, church. 
So when, when we consider why it is that we are saved or why it is that we have become followers of Jesus, the first thing in our mind should not be pointing to our parents or our grandparents or those who raised us up in the faith. It should be our understanding of who God is, that there is no mediation of anyone else's faith between our relationship with God, that he alone, that Jesus is our mediator between God and man. Now, the original language in verse 9 is actually really challenging. See, what we read in the ESV, which is the, the text that I'm reading from and teaching from, that when we read, are we Jews any better off, is actually a single Greek word. And that word, that single word that, that makes up that entire phrase or that entire question, is at its simplest form, the idea of advantage. So similar to verse, verse 1. But a better reading of that particular word is to hold up before or to hold one's hands over for protection. So interpreters have to make a number of decisions, whether it's with context here, what voice, middle, or active, or even who we is. When Paul says we, we have to decide, is he talking about Jews? Is he talking about Christians? Who exactly is he talking about? One interpreter took all of this into consideration, interpreting Paul's words metaphorically, and he renders this particular question this way. Have we a shelter under which we can regard ourselves as delivered from wrath? Have we a shelter? Is there a place we can hide that can deliver us from God's wrath? So, so the question in, in a really sort of blunt way, does anything shield or cover us from God's righteous judgment, God's righteous wrath against sin? And Paul says, no, not at all. There's nowhere we can hide, in other words. That's where the language sort of takes us. See, we are exposed. We are vulnerable. We are condemned. And based upon his answer and the vagueness even of that word we is that at, at, as well as the proceeding all here in verse 9 and verse 10 is that what Paul is saying is that everybody, you, me, everybody is ultimately vulnerable to the wrath of God. In other words, no one is righteous. He has been repeating this in chapter 2 and now here in chapter 3 and he is making it as plain as possible. Now, we have to understand that the Bible, particularly the New, the New Testament, does not think about people in the way that we often do. We often think about people based on their actions and behaviors when we're determining some sort of moral credence to their life or some sort of moral aptitude to their life. Or another way of thinking about it is that the Bible does not think about people as good or, or bad, as we have a tendency to do today. Is that person good? Is that person bad? And these two sort of categories that we put people in. In fact, our tendency, and I know that this is true of me, is actually very personal, and it changes. When I think about even my own moral acumen, my own uh, morality, my mood, my self-concept is weakly affected by the good and the bad things that we do. In fact, today, my disposition, real talk, if I can just be 100 with you, my disposition for the rest of the day will come with thoughts of how I preached. Did I preach good? Was I clear? Was I passionate? Did somehow I communicate in a non-Zoom fashion through a live stream service? So based on how I do, I will then believe that I am a good or a bad person or good or a bad preacher. It's all based on my action. And, and in fact, even within this pandemic, I don't know about you, but I've regularly had to face melancholy. Feelings of just lowness and sorrow that I can't even explain. And sometimes I just look at my wife and say, I don't even know where these emotions are coming from. And sometimes it's not even coming in that self-aware of a way. Sometimes I just get angry with my children or I get frustrated with my, 
with my wife and have to go for a long run or something as, as if distance from my home where I can feel confined is my savior, that ultimately there are things going on in me that I'm trying to assess. Am I, am I good? Am I right? Am I okay? These sorts of things are creeping up on it. Perhaps you like, like me in a way that they haven't previously. See, ultimately what, what happens is that we regularly face whether fear or anxiety or even an assessment of our own behavior in, in, in something I think that is so haunting about that is that those things change. So if that's the way that we determine our goodness or our badness, then we are ultimately left with this incredible moral anxiety because that changes all the time. See, the scriptures don't speak about us that way. The scriptures doesn't speak about anybody that way. Simply an assessment of, of deeds and actions and behaviors. Instead, the scriptures speak about two kinds of people this way. Those who are under sin and those who are under grace. The bad news, however, though that, that may seem like a helpful framework and better than simply my actions, my good deeds and my bad, one outweighing the other in a given day or ultimately uh, in the future. The bad news is, is that when, when Paul speaks about this with clarity here about the idea that do we have a shelter to hide under that will protect us from the wrath of God, the righteousness of God, we are all found to be under sin, not under grace. It left to ourselves, left to our own righteousness, left to our own assessment of our own morality. We are all under sin. Jew, Gentile, every single one of us. See, there are a few ways human beings have attempted to understand uh, the evil in our world, inside and outside of the church. And, and first of all, many atheist modern people leverage the presence of evil as even evidence for why I, I, they think that God doesn't exist. In other words, because evil exists, then a good and loving and all-powerful God could not. This is how the thinking goes. That, that's been happening for generations. But what's, what's new about our current reflections on evil and what the Bible calls sin is, is cancellation and elimination. That people who do evil or whom we deem to be bad people, we, we cancel them. We, we, we call into question not only their job, but their platform, and we try to remove them from different portions of culture in which they have a presence or power or a voice. And, and when it happens to us, we're not really sure what to do at all because we don't want to cancel ourselves. See, when, when evil, often in the form of fear, comes our way, we've been taught to just sort of eliminate it. What, what am I talking about? Well, in his uh, first, or rather, his number one New York Times bestselling book, uh, Jay Shetty, he sort of summarizes his understanding about what we uh, are to do with fear. He says... Uh, or rather, he's written that fear comes from a lack of knowledge. Accelerate your learning, he says. Eliminate your fear. Now, in an earthly sense, this, this, this sort of makes sense to us. That learning leads to understanding, and, and then that leads to less fear. So if I'm a fearful person, it's, it's because it's the unknown, and so I just need to educate myself and learn and grow. But in actuality, when we think about that, that's not only different from the biblical narrative, from biblical principles, from the truth of who God is. It's actually the opposite. See, Proverbs 9.10 teaches us that fear is the beginning of wisdom. We don't learn in order to eradicate fear. We find our being and our source of understanding. Fearing God rightly is actually where wisdom and knowledge come from. What's more is that at some point our progressive take on reconciling the darkness of this world falls flat because we've never fully understood the darkness at all. We've just tried to eliminate it or ignore it or downplay it. See, what the Bible teaches us 
is that sin and evil are about pollution and guilt. And we're going to take some time to think through that today. The Bible speaks about sin as pollution and guilt. In other words, spiritual darkness is a part of this world. It's clear. It's unavoidable. It's part of the fabric of the way that things have been ever since the fall. Things are not as they should be. But it's also, sin is also embedded in our hearts. Our thoughts, our actions, our behaviors, our affections violate God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, as a pollutant, it it makes, or rather, in, in many ways, we are victims of sin's persistence and evil's presence in this world. But we're guilty and we're culpable for its existence as well. And as we've learned through Romans 2 and Romans 3, as human beings, not simply because of the pollution, but also because of the guilt, we are all under sin and we will be judged for sin. Now, throughout history, you can imagine that church leaders have sort of debated and jostled about how to understand sin, where it's come from. And we speak about original sin or the origin of sin. And early on, many Greek uh, theologians in the third and fourth century tried to detach their understanding or rather the collective church's understanding from that of Adam and Eve, our first parents. But in uh, Latin and North uh, African church scholarship and fathers like Augustine, they maintained this connection. They maintained the connection with our understanding of Adam and Eve and their fall, their sin, as well as ours, that it was something that we inherited, this pollutant and this guilt. And so 1,500 years later, removed from these church fathers, then German reformers like Martin Luther captured the teaching of those Latin and North African thinkers and their understanding of sin and and this sort of understanding that we are connected to our first parents and their story in violation against God becomes the bedrock of the Protestant Reformation. And as a result now, we see clearly that the scriptures and now church history attest to the fact that sin's origin is found in the angelic world as as John wrote about, as Isaiah wrote about, as, as Paul wrote about in 1 Timothy. And eventually it manifested in the human race in the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. The Apostle Paul takes all of this into consideration. He summarizes it for us. Turn to the right in your Bibles to Romans 5, 12, and 14. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Here Paul gives us an understanding. Remember martiology, the study of sin. He gives us an understanding of sin here in uh, Romans 5, 12, and 13. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world, through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So sin comes into the world through Adam, but sin's Sin originated with the one who tempted Adam, Satan himself. So it's a pollutant and it is a guilt. We are both victims and perpetrators then of God's glory and his righteousness. And in Paul's language here in in Romans 3, we're all under sin. All of us. No one is righteous. No, not one. And that's what was difficult for Paul's original audience to accept. And so in order to make this point, point plain, The apostle marshals in the weight of the Old Testament in this this grounding of his idea. It's almost like this evidence that he is bringing before his readers. Now, it's through this small yet, yet very important moment like this in Scripture that we're about to look at a little bit more 
intimately that we get our ideas for what's called expositional preaching to preach as a way of exposing the truth of the scriptures, to walk through it slowly but surely, clearly, so that we'd see the truth and beauty of God's word. Paul is not speaking then simply directed by the Spirit. He is speaking directed by the Spirit, grounded in God's word, under the authority and power of God's word. That's what was so particularly advantageous of, of a path for his Jewish readers to understand because they trusted the Old Testament their Hebrew Bible. And so Paul, in order to communicate that they are under sin, takes their word, the word that they were familiar with as Jewish readers, and helps them to see the clarity through God's word, what is true about their nature. So what does it mean to be under sin? If you remember last week, we looked at why sin is fun or why it's so pleasurable or joyful or enjoyable because it's self-centered, sin gives us friends, and that uh, sin provides instant gratification at little cost. Now, in Paul's logical thought from there in verses 5 and 6, or rather 6 and 8, it's good for us to consider what effect sin has on us. So we looked at why sin is enjoyable, and now we'll look at how sin has affected us. What has it done to us? Namely, what it means to be under sin gives us a picture of what it means to be affected by sin. So, so Paul goes through a number of Old Testament passages. He pulls up Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 14, Psalm 53. He goes into uh, the Proverbs and into Isaiah. And from these passages, we get a picture of how sin has changed us. Those who have been made in the image of God, how sin has changed us. See, we're made in God's image for the purpose of God and for the purposes of God, not just to behave a particular way, but ultimately to reflect God and and ultimately, what has happened to us is that we have been transformed by the pollution and the guilt of sin. Dr. Tim Keller is going to help us walk through these quotations. So I'm going to take a, a map that he has charted out, these seven different effects from these different passages that Paul lays out here in the next few verses in our primary passage. He, he lays out seven effects that uh, sin has upon us, and they're summarized uh, from his book, which I think is immensely helpful and accessible. I know many of you are reading it, Romans 1 through 7 for you, so I commend it to you. And follow along with me, if you will, as we look at these next few verses. So flip back, if you're in Romans 5, flip back to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. So what Paul is going to do, he's going to bring in all of these Old Testament passages, and through each passage that he brings up, through each quotation that he brings up, we'll see another aspect of how sin has changed us. And so first we see that sin changes our legal standing. Look at verse 10, or rather beginning in verse 9, moving on into 10. He says that both Jews and Gentiles are under the law. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. So, so sin changes our legal standing. We are under sin. Sin also changes our minds. Look at, look at verse 11, the very beginning. No one understands. Sin has affected the way that we think. Thirdly, sin changes our motives. Look, no one seeks for God there in the latter half of verse 11. Moving on in verse 12, we look fourthly that sin changes our will or our wills. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So sin changes our legal standing, changes our minds, changes our motives, changes our wills. And then fifthly, sin changes our our words, the ways that we speak. Look, Paul takes his time here, verse 13 and 14. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their, their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Not only so, but sin changes our relationships. Look at verse 15 through 17. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. So all of their relationships are affected by this thirst for blood and for violence against those whom they should be taking care of and loving in, in community. Lastly, seventh, is that sin changes our relationship with God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So sin changes us at a holistic level. So to be under sin means that we have been changed by sin. We have been cursed by sin. This pollutant and this guilt changes our legal standing, changes our minds, changes our motives, our wills, our words, our relationships, and specifically our relationship with God. So to be under sin, to be under sin is to be completely changed by the pollution and guilt of sin. We are both victims of this and perpetrators of God's will and righteousness. And Paul reiterates through this litany of Old Testament passages what he initially states in verse 9 that no one is any better off than anyone else. Everyone is under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. And remember, through the lens of the Bible, we, we are not good or bad. There's not like this gradation of where you fall in this. You notice that? There, there's not these uh, sort of like streams of different kinds of people within this. They, they, we are either under sin or we are under grace. We are not known simply by what we say and what we do. Rather, the scriptures speak about two kinds of people, those who are under the sin and those who are under grace. Because of evil's pollution and our guilt, what Paul is saying is that we are under sin and we have been changed by sin. But doesn't something strike you as a bit odd about how forceful Paul is with all of this? Paul expounding on, on uh, Psalm 14 and 57 he says this at the very beginning of this litany of Old Testament passages. He says, no one is righteous, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks after God. As I mentioned, this is coming from Psalm 14 and 57, but doesn't that seem a bit harsh? Doesn't it seem a bit extreme, right? I mean, heaven forbid, we think Paul is kind of extreme about something. But doesn't it maybe at first blush even seem inaccurate? Is this actually true? Is it actually true that no one seeks God, that no one understands anything? After all, Paul is writing to a bunch of really well-informed religious people who have memorized much more of Scripture than I ever have, than you ever have, probably in your life. They knew God's Word. They've grown up in God's Word. Certainly, they were seeking God at least a little bit. But Paul uses this extreme and holistic kind of language. See, many of you have been studying the Bible for a long time. Is it true then that you don't understand anything? Or... I've been following Jesus for a little bit. Is it true that I haven't actually been seeking him in any of those things? Well, let's look at Psalm 14. What could Paul and the psalmist actually be saying? What kind of uh, purpose is there behind this claim or logic? See, the fool says in his heart, the psalmist says, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So that's Psalm 14. Psalm 53 is actually very similar, almost identical in its original language. And both Psalms are written by the king, uh, the shepherd king David. However, there are few 
uh, key textual variations in the two passages in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. What is most notable about the, their, their difference or their variance is that Psalm 14 is directed toward evildoers within God's people, within Israel. Psalm 53 is a prophetic announcement of God's response to a recent siege from Israel's enemies. The evildoers in this case are harming God's people. So one, Psalm 14, is about the evil of Israel, and the other, Psalm 53, is about the evil toward Israel. And so we can understand why Paul then takes this and weaves it within his argument in Psalm 3, because sin is a pollution and guilt. Sin is around us and it's inside of us. We, we are victims and we are perpetrators. Additionally, whether as reason for sin or a result of sin, people neither know nor pursue God. That's Psalm 14, 53, and here in Romans uh, 3. And what's that about? Well, when we look at the vastness of God's word, I think we find something that the Bible tells us about God a little bit unexpected. Certainly unexpected in our really overtly self-centered spiritual formation concepts that we often adopt and adapt in the 21st century. See, God is unknowable. God is unsearchable. This is clear throughout all of scripture. The psalmist explains it this way in Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Paul repeats this theme with real clarity in Romans chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable, Paul says, are his judgments. How unscrutable, inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? You see, it's not just that we don't know and do not search for God, but even if we tried, and we do, we can never find him on our own. We can never find God on our own. This is why John says in his gospel account, no one has ever seen God. God is hidden, mysterious, unknowable, unreachable, unsearchable. So how do we reconcile all of this? The fact that anyone can read the Bible and learn things about God, but the Bible claims that God is unknowable. How would we bring together these truths and understand them rightly? See, I think what this communicates to us, and, and this perhaps is what, what's hard for us to concede, is that there is a vast difference between knowing things about God and knowing God. There's a vast difference between knowing things about God and knowing God. There's a difference between, in other words, familiarity and understanding. Many of you are really familiar with God. Many of you grew up in the church, right? And there was a great advantage, great value, but it doesn't save you. Why? Because you're familiar with God, but you do not know him. You are familiar with the things of God, but you do not know the God of the universe. This is what Paul is saying, and he continues to press in. Not only so, there is this huge variance between seeking the things that God gives you and seeking God. There's a difference between chasing hard after God because you know he has the ability to give you the things that you desire and actually wanting to be with him, of searching and longing for God in his presence. See, if we're really honest, I think a lot of the times we're good with just being familiar and we're good with just getting things from God. Am I preaching to you yet? That ultimately we don't, we don't actually want to find God. We just want to get close enough to God that we, we can benefit from him, that we can get stuff from him, 
that maybe we can just get stuff from people in our religious community, even here at Church in the Square, where it looks like we're faithful in our attendance. It looks like we are connected to our community. We're serving our neighbors. We're doing these things because actually we get something from them. Or maybe we're close to God in the middle of trying and difficult times because nothing else has worked and maybe he will get me what I want. See, if we're honest, we are seeking the things that God can give us, and we are good with simply being familiar but not actually knowing God. I think in actuality what this reveals is that we're really terrified to actually find him. We're actually scared to actually find God. We're scared to actually know who he really is because maybe even the ways that we are coming to him, even the ways that we are conceptualizing him, are broken. See, do you see that sin has polluted and damaged and brought so much decay to us, that the pollution and guilt of our sin has even changed the way that we know and the way that we search for God. It has this perilous effect. It's led us to believe that if we work hard enough, we can find God on our own. And we can find God on our own, on our terms, in our way. See, one of the primary reasons that God is unknowable and unsearchable is not just because he's invisible, but rather because he's holy. He's holy. God is righteous in all his ways, and he therefore is set apart from us, mere mortals, mere created beings. In fact, that's the definition of holiness. He is set apart. It's the idea captured in God's words recorded by the prophet Isaiah when he wrote, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways or your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, this separation is by design, but sin has complicated the separation. And we now misinterpret the separation. We are always designed to be lesser than God. We're always meant, in other words, to bear his image, but not become his image. Yet this separation was never meant to remove intimacy. The separation, actually, the holiness of God was meant to foster intimacy. But the effects of sin have caused this separation to deteriorate even intimacy. With God. See, through sin's pollution and our guilt, our legal standing, our mind, our motives, our will, our words, our relationships have all been corrupted and changed by sin. Therefore, our intimacy with God has been corrupted as well. And so Paul concludes in this whole litany of Old Testament passages. Look what he says, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And we're going to take the remainder of our time to really focus in on this idea of fear because it's where Paul concludes. So as the old preacher used to say, if you've not heard anything that I've said today, hear this, church. See, fear is actually a primary expression of intimacy with God. Fear is actually a primary expression of intimacy with God. Not unlike heat is the primary experience of proximity with the sun. See, to know and seek God is to fear him. Actually, it's the opposite. To fear God is to know and to seek him. That's the memorable point of Proverbs chapter 9. God help us. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. See, the closer we are with the Lord, the greater our fear of him. And the more we fear him, the more we know him. This is one of those biblical paradoxes. And if you remember, a paradox is an apparent contradiction that when you continue to to investigate, upon a further investigation, is found 
to be true. See, surprisingly, church, my sisters and my brothers, we are called to fear the Lord because that's where relationship with him begins. A relationship that changes everything about us that sin has polluted and made guilty. Paul ended this particular passage, this Romans, or rather these Old Testament reflections with this final implication of sin, that fear is eradicated. Our fear of God. There is no fear of God in their eyes, which he cites from Psalm 36. See, fear then is the beginning of our true relationship with God. Jesus made this paradox plain in Matthew chapter 10 when he said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is calling uh, for fear to be redirected. He was encouraging his followers not to despair and fear their critics, their enemies, their, their persecutors. They can only kill the body, Jesus says. Jesus says you're fearing the wrong person. Jesus says fear the Lord. He can destroy your body and your soul. In other words, God is way more terrifying than anyone or anything you can find anywhere in this world. In a 1986 article from the magazine Christianity Today, a man named William Eisenhower explained these words, expounded upon these words in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Why it's so hard for us to even conceive of fearing the Lord. And here's what he wrote. And I think his words are just as true today as they were then. He says, unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is ultimate, the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is scarier than the world by far. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. We replace his sovereign freedom with an echoing function. Such an echo may answer our loneliness for a time, but it cannot question our decisions. Here's what I think Eisenhower is getting at. Is that we do not fear God because we are more afraid of this world. Therefore, in our earthly fears, God becomes a kind of cheerleader only, a security blanket, a therapeutic guru to make us feel better in the middle of our scary time. In doing so, what we've done, uh, perhaps unwittingly, is that since death has gripped our souls so much that we believe that God's power and the, the, the thing that we fear are, are equal, that, that therefore all God can do is sort of hold our fears at bay and sort of give us peace in the middle of the storm. So, so we don't fear God, we fear the world. Therefore, we don't even know him. You, you see, this is what the proverb is getting at. That if we have not feared God, we don't know him. And if we don't know and fear God, then we will live a terrified life. Let's be clear. And I want to be real right now. What do I fear? What do you fear? What do we fear? Let me explain a few things that as I was considering this, I, I believe from the Lord, what are we fearing right now? I'm not going to cover everything. So if there are things in your life or in mine that we, we don't cover, I wanted to highlight a few things that I think are particularly pertinent for us this week and the following, particularly in the season that we are in. Four fears that I think about which really are surfacing in our church in our time, in this particular situation. We can talk about a lot of things, but let's talk about the pandemic and the election. First, I think, as, as the Lord 
from his word is, is saying is that I think that we fear or we can fear. We fear a virus more than we fear God. See, many of us, the first thing that we do every single morning is hop on to whatever news outlet that we trust. We read the latest numbers and anxiety sets in. We do not pray. We do not go to God. We begin to contemplate our own safety, the safety of our children, family members, friends. We never allow ourselves to hope and deliverance or hope and protection, believing that life will never be the same again if we survive. So, so what this has a tendency of doing is that instead of trusting the Lord, we only begin to trust a virus that, or rather a vaccine that will protect us from the virus. Secondly, in the middle of a pandemic, we fear losing our freedoms more than we fear God. While we ought to feel the angst of, of different restrictions and the implications that, that are hitting many of our friends and neighbors and perhaps us who are vulnerable to so many different things, there is a point when we lament our limitations more than we are grieved by sickness and death. We, we lament the things that we are losing more than we go to God and ask for his help. We can easily find ourselves fighting for every ounce of freedom and liberty, decrying any governmental order or Facebook comment that says otherwise. This is a direct refusal to obey the fundamental nature of what it means to be a Christian, of the Christian call to lay down our rights as God in Christ has laid down his for our good. So we may fear a virus more than God. We may fear losing our freedoms more than God. We may fear Trump more than God. For instance, we fear that under his leadership, governmental powers like ICE or local police will continue to give, be given more latitude, leading to more violence against black and brown people in particular. We fear a continued regime which has been bankrupt of any moral comprehension will continue to lead to a pervasive decline in our cultures, or rather our country's moral conduct, and a breakdown into a more perfect union. We fear Trump and his power over our country more than we fear God and his power over all things. We may not fear Trump, we may fear Biden more than God. We may fear an increased governmental presence in our daily life through things like health care or a decreased legislation for the protection of the unborn or biblical marriage. We fear perhaps that Biden will simply be a figurehead through which other socialist agendas as we have deemed them would be dead and dying and catastrophic to liberty will take hold of our country's democracy. These are all fears in the church. These are not fears that we're merely observing outside of the church. These are fears in the church that have been exacerbated beyond our fear of God. One of the primary ways I think that we can tell we are too fearful is that we think and talk about a virus or one of these candidates more than we think about or talk with or talk about God. It's not that any of these are not terrifying or not, or not frightening. It's that none of these are supreme that none of these ultimately determine your tomorrow above the Lord. And yet we fear like most everyone else. And when we fear like the world, we look like the world. When we fear like the world, we have no more power than the world. Fearing these things or the things of this world is the fruit of a life which is not being daily transformed by the Lord, not being daily transformed by the Lordship of Jesus. It, it is someone who does not have a healthy fear of the Lord. That may sound pretty ethereal and, and sort of large scale and float over us, but when we zoom in on a healthy fear of the Lord, it looks a lot like obedience and trust. It looks a lot like submitting to him on a daily basis, taking these things to him and say, God, help, we trust you. 
This is the power of the cross and the power of the gospel. It's Christ. In Christ, rather, God takes a fearful and sin-guilty and polluted people and makes them his own. He says, in this world you may have trouble. In this world you may have fear, but fear not. I've overcome it all. See, he doesn't say there's nothing to be scared of in this world. There are plenty of things to be scared of. But he says, I've overcome them all. I'm over them all. He takes people who are under sin and here's what he does. He puts them under grace. And when we are under grace, we obey, we trust, we submit, we go to God more than we go to anyone else. Paul's entire point, I think, in Romans 3, 19, or 9 rather, through 18, is that when we are under sin, we are completely infected and affected by sin. It's the grid through which we see the world. We're under sin, its pollution has made us sick, and its guilt leads to our judgment. One of the ways the scripture summarizes this status and standing is through the language of fear, that we do not understand, we don't seek God because we do not fear God. We do not fear God because we are under sin. That's where Paul lands this particular passage. Everyone under sin does not fear God, so they neither know him nor search for him. You see, to know God is to fear him. And in in John's gospel account, we're given one of the most majestic treatises of the nature of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He opens up his biography, John does, of Jesus, unlike any other. In fact, let's turn to John chapter 1. Turn to the left. Past Acts, and you'll get to John. John chapter 1. We'll look at a couple of portions of this passage to help us understand how it is that Jesus moves into our lives moves into this world in a way that is altogether different and in many respects is altogether terrifying. Romans 1 verse 1 and following says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's beautiful. Words are the way that, that to, to make ourselves known, to give invi- the, the invisible truths and, and thoughts and ideas heard and seen and experienced. See, John tells us that the word, God's divine self-disclosure, God's divine self-expression was, is, and forevermore will be God. And then look at verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, John says, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So the word shows up, the internal word, and has announced announced the realities of God in and through the word in the world. and word And the world did not know him. How unsearchable is God? How unknowable is God? No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. There is no fear of God because when the word, the son of God in the flesh showed up, we didn't know him. We didn't see him. We didn't hear him. We didn't recognize him. We didn't receive him. But then the unthinkable happens to this word yet unknown, unseen, unheard. Verse 14, 16 and 17, or 16 and 18 rather. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. Here's the good news about being 
under grace is that the God we could not search out, the God we could not know, the God we could not find on our own has made himself known through Jesus Christ. Notice that, hear that, rejoice in that, don't miss that. Fear this, that the unknown God is made known through the word. The unsearchable God reveals himself through the word. The invisible God is made visible and plain through the word and in showing up, In such a way, he extends grace upon grace to anyone and everyone who is under sin that believes that we might become a people no longer under sin, but rather under grace. And under grace, all of me and all of you that has been marred by sin, changed by sin, broken by sin, polluted by sin, made guilty by sin, is restored by grace through faith. You see, under sin, we are victims of evil's pollution and we are guilty of the consequence and punishment of sin. But by grace through faith, Jesus Christ purifies and he forgives and cleanses us of a guilty conscience and places us under the redemptive, powerful, protective hand of his grace. And so my brothers and sisters, if the holy and triune and eternal God, unseen, unheard, unsearchable, unknowable, if that God, if this God, if the only God has made himself eternally known through the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the living word, if he has done this, if he has come into this world, if, if no one could have saved you and yet God in Christ stepped in, took your place on the cross, took my place on the cross, then nothing in this world is more terrifying than that. If the eternal God has made himself known in real space, real time, and died in your place and for your sins and rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death, why do we fear anything else? Why would we fear? That's terrifying that he could do that, that he did that. So, if this is all so, surrender your life. Lay down your right. Confess your allegiance. Confess your sin. Obey every word that comes from his mouth. As one who is now under grace, fear God and no one else. Heavenly Father, help us to fear you and you alone, that true knowledge, true understanding, and true life would be ours in Jesus Christ. I pray that for myself. I pray that for my sisters and brothers, especially this week and on into next, would we be men and women hidden away, under grace, under your care, under your righteousness, under your sovereignty, under your power, a people who fear God rightly, that we might face the fears of this world rightly with hope, with joy in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.